Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource provided by Mark Inc. Ministries. You know, over 350 million people worldwide will experience some form of depression. And I believe those who have never experienced it often think that the depressed person just needs to try harder. Bill tells the author of Lay It Down, Living in the Freedom of the Gospel, and he shares his story of severe depression and how trying harder only took him deeper into the pit of despair. Friends, depression is one of those crises of life that is experienced in isolation. But today, today, you will hear the story of help and hope that will not only encourage the depressed person, but will help those who love him or her to better understand the battle. So, Bill, welcome. It's great to have you with us today here on Mark Inc. Ministries. Thank you. Privileged to be with you. Bill, you, you know, before we actually get into talking about the severe depression that you experienced, why don't you tell us about your life right now? Where are you right now? Well, physically, I'm in Colorado Springs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Beautiful part of the country. <laughs> my wife and I have worked with the Navigators. Uh, we're now in our 40, 46th year. Unbelievable that I can be that old. And my, my current role is staff and leader development specialist. And I particularly focus on 20 to 30-year-old staff that, that lead our campus ministries. The focus with them is, is how, how do you lead a movement? that is passionately committed to the gospel. My wife, Sue, and I have been married for uh, 46 years. We've got, we've got two married sons. We've got five grandchildren. But we don't have an empty nest because we still have Lexi, our golden retriever. Your list of accomplishments is really impressive, and especially the, the leadership roles you had with that great organization, the Navigators. What are some of your responsibilities when you were the vice president? What, what did you have on your plate then? Yeah, lots of things. I was uh, I served in vice president role for about 14 years, and you, as you can imagine, there would be a variety of responses over that that period. I oversaw the our U.S. collegiate ministry for a time. I oversaw our U.S. military ministry. I served as deputy director to our U.S. president, and then the last three years as uh, vice president, I served as chief of staff. I always like to refer to it as chief of stuff. But I have to add, the, the entire time that uh, I served as vice president, both my wife and I, we, we never lost our heart for college students. And that is why I initiated resigning from my leadership role and, and went back to the field ministry. You know, every, every missionary movement in, student, in, in uh, spiritual awakening in history has been launched and initiated by young people. And so we wanted to get back out there to the fringe of the ministry and be a part of that. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, as you were serving in this role, that's when the depression hit. Is that correct? And how old were you when that happened? And I would have been uh, about 49. Had depression ever been a part of your life prior to that? You know, I had never, I had never experienced depression before that. Uh, but like, like all of us, I, I would have periods of being discouraged or of being moody, but in, uh, in contrast, you know, and in contrast to my leadership traits, I have a strong melancholic streak in me. So I, you know, some days I might feel rather schizophrenic, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I had never experienced depression, just kind of normal, uh, or normal discouragement and, and a few moody days here and there. 
Well, why don't you describe the moment when your body and mind just seem to shut down? Well, Chuck, that morning is absolutely etched in my memory. And I describe it vividly in my book. So for our listeners, if they want more detail, let me encourage them to go to the first couple chapters there. But Sue and I were traveling, and uh, we were participating in a missions conference at one of our home, we consider our home and supporting churches. And uh, we were going to see lots of friends, and I had eagerly packed and overloaded our schedule. And I woke up early Sunday morning. The missions conference was going to start that morning. I woke up early Sunday morning, and it was still dark. And I, I began to experience something that I had, I had never experienced before. I woke up dripping with sweat. My heart was pounding. The, the room was spinning. I, I mean, I literally felt like I was going to fall out of bed because I found myself grasping the sheets just to, just to hang on. And it was absolutely terrifying. And now, you know, now as I look back, it was the first of what became many panic attacks. As a result of that morning, my schedule for the day totally was eliminated because as I looked forward to the day, my refrain was, I can't do that. I can't do that. Mm. I can't do that. So basically, we canceled, we canceled everything on my schedule for the day. Were there any warning signs that took place before that particular day? Anything happened prior to that that kind of gave you an indication, hey, something's not right here? In retrospect, yes. But at the time, we didn't connect the dots. I had come off a period of time where I had extreme, extremely heavy responsibility. I was very, very, very tired. My tank was empty. My emotional tank was empty. My physical tank was empty. My spiritual tank was, was empty. And uh, the, first, the first indicator or warning sign was, was that I was having trouble sleeping. I woke up, I'd wake up about three in the morning just absolutely filled with energy. And um, sleep is my, and I didn't understand it, Chuck, because sleep is my spiritual gift. And I, 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 I've never had trouble with it. <laughs> Another early indication of that was the things that I always wanted to do, the things that I love to do, I didn't want to do them anymore. And as I thought about the commitments on my calendar, and you know, I didn't want to do them, but they were things I'd always loved doing in the collegiate ministry and being with our collegiate staff and being with students. And now I'd think about going to this campus or that meeting, and I'd just go, I don't want to do that. So those were some of the early, early yeah. signs that really didn't make sense to us. You know, typically people who are battling depression have a lot of difficulty doing some of the things that are the mundane things like uh, yeah. reading or engaging with another person for more than a few minutes. Yet your yeah. particular calling required you to interact with lots of people. Did you, did you continue to work or attend church or social functions? What happened after that depression struck you? Chuck, I couldn't do any of those things. Once I got home, uh, my days were pretty much spent sitting in my favorite Lazy Boy recliner, just trying to survive. I couldn't read anything. I couldn't read the Bible. I couldn't read the newspaper. And just to communicate how serious it was, I couldn't even read my favorite Louis L'Amour cowboy books. Huh. Now, that's, that's pretty serious, my yeah, friend. pretty serious. Um, I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't talk on the phone. I couldn't 
have visitors come when visitors came and, and would ring the front doorbell. I would go to our bedroom and just hide in the corner. And, and every day was black. Every day was dark. And I'd never experienced anything like this, but every thought I had was, was negative. And I knew I was dying. And, and one day I knew I was dying of a heart attack. And the next day I knew I was going to have a stroke. And the next day I knew I had a brain tumor. And, but thankfully, during, during this time, the, the navigators gave me sick leave. And one of the really special things during this time is, is the U.S. president called my wife, Sue, every day for a couple of months to see how I was doing. But other than that, I, you know, I, just, I, I, was, just, uh, I was just at home. I, I couldn't do anything. It had to be so frustrating to feel the way you felt. You also had to come to a point of saying, hey, I need some help. Yeah, yeah. Where did you turn for help? Well, one of the first places I turned was to my doctor. I actually called him that morning from uh, our, our trip when I first experienced that first panic attack. Uh, I actually called back to Colorado and um, talked to him. And he told me to keep a journal uh, of how I was feeling for the next few days. And then when I got back to the Springs here to bring in my journal and read it to him, and he assured me that I wasn't going to die. And that was very, very, very important because I, I, needed, I needed to hear that. And so very early on, I, I got some medical help because I had no idea what was going on. And then I turned to a very good friend, Bill Thrall. Bill is part of the True Faith Ministry, anchored down there in Phoenix. And Bill deeply, deeply understands the grace of God. So at about probably the five-month point or so, I was able to travel. And we went down to Phoenix for a day to spend some time with Bill. And then he connected us with a, a very, very godly counselor in Denver. And uh, we began a two-week counseling intensive with him. And that, that was life-changing, Chuck. It, it started us on a a dramatic journey in a, that was incredibly life-changing. You tell your story in your book, Lay It Down, and, and we have information on our website at markinc.org for listeners to learn more about you and your outreach and also how to contact you. But one of the great benefits of a book like yours, I think, is that it really does take the reader into the heart and the mind of a person who is struggling with uh, what we will call clinical depression, and mm-hmm. to help those who love them to better understand the journey they're going through. Because, you know, there's no obvious physical wounds from depression. So it's yeah. kind of hard for people who have never experienced it to understand, you know, a clinically depressed person cannot just buck up, pull himself up by his bootstraps, get back to life. Describe some of the emotions and the darkness that you experienced. Maybe somebody out there can relate to what yeah. you're saying. Well, as I mentioned, every day was just dark. It was black. And I could, I could feel the depression. As, as I would sit in the chair or on the sofa, I, I could feel the depression just wash over me in waves. And, and I was unable to have one positive thought. A lot of the panic attacks would happen at night. So the thought of going to bed and going to sleep was, was terrifically uh, scary. And when I think back on the time, Chuck, I think I was scared the entire time. I, I was scared of what was happening to me, and I was scared of what the future was going to be like. You know, would, would, would this ever end? Is, am, I, am I going to be permanently this way? 
and it was just a, a terrifying world and terrifying time to be in for me. Let me add that, you know, the last thing I needed was, was advice or encouragement from some well-intentioned people because they all had their silver bullets. I had, had one friend tell me that my problem was I wasn't eating enough whole grain bread and I needed to eat more whole grain bread. And then, you know, another person told me I was, I was taking the wrong type of, of vitamins and, and so forth. When you're discouraged or depressed, let me use the word depressed, you know, logic, another person's logic and their encouragement just don't work. And you know immediately, once they, they give you their silver bullets and their logic and their encouragement, I, I would know immediately that that person had never been where I was. Yeah, you, they could not relate to you. They couldn't. Well, let me ask, let me ask you a, a really personal question here. How did the depression uh, affect your marriage? What, what were some of the inner turmoil? You know, you're a provider, a protector. And, and did you struggle with the inability to fill that role? Or were you so ill that you were able to accept that you just could not do it? How, how did all of this affect your relationship to your wife? Yeah. Well, it was an interesting time in our marriage. It wasn't a bad time, but we were just in a, in a place we'd, we'd never been before. And, and everything we knew about our roles and about how to serve each other and to love each other, all of that was, was just wiped away. And it, it was a time of incredible mystery for us. Sue couldn't understand what I was going through because she'd never gone through it. And, and I was struggling with how do I explain to Sue a feeling to someone who has never had that feeling? And you can't. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't find words to explain and communicate what I was going through. And it made me feel very, very, very alone. Um, and of course, being alone is scary. It's terrifying. Sue knew that a pep talk wouldn't help me, and she knew encouragement wouldn't work. And actually, giving me a pep talk or an encouragement, I think, would have made me feel even worse because I would have, I would not have been able to buck up like she told me to, and I would felt m more of a failure. And so, what what I really needed from Sue was just her presence because it was scary to be alone. I just needed Sue's presence. I really didn't need her words or anything. I just needed her to be there. And is that what she did? Yes, yes. Now I knew I also had to protect her and allow her times away and out of the house and with her friends. But those were very scary times for me because I was home alone and, you know, if a panic attack would, would hit, it's, it's really scary to be alone. Bill, you talk a lot about being a people pleaser in your book. What do you mean by that? And, and how did being a people pleaser contribute to your depression? Oh, excellent question. You know, because we, we all struggle with shame as a result of the fall back in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Every, every person is, is going to be a people pleaser in, in some aspect. Uh, I don't believe any, anybody's exempt from it. But I want to be quick to add that the gospel is what rescues us from that. You know, shame tells me that I'm not good enough, I'm broken, I'm unlovable, I'm dirty, I'm defective, I'm flawed. And because shame wants to tell me that, you know, we hide, we wear masks, we perform, I excel, all of those things in an effort to hide what we don't want other people to see. 
and and what we don't want them to know about us. Because if they saw those things about me and about you and and knew those things, what they I, I'm scared to death that they would reject me. And of course, rejection and abandonment is absolutely terrifying. And so, you know, my shame statement that I grew up with was, I don't have much worth and I'm stupid. And those were built in by the dynamics of my family and my parents and, and the environment I grew up in. And so I developed a strategy that to deal with that. And my strategy was this, is that I was going to meet every, every expectation I thought that you had of me. And not only meet them, I was going to exceed those expectations. And that is how I would have worth. But, you know, I think the underlying principle in the scriptures is, is you can never work or you perform or perform your way out of your shame. You can't do it. If you, if you try to work your way out of your shame or perform your way out of your shame, it actually increases your shame. Because at some point, your performance is going to fail, your effort's going to fail. And you're going to wind up saying to yourself, I knew it. I knew that's who I was. And so the only, the only solution to people pleasing, the only solution to our shame is in the gospel. In your book, Lay It Down, Living in the Freedom of the Gospel, the summary of your book says this, and I'd like you to react to this. Yeah. It, it says, call it burnout, a spiritual breakdown, or a personal crisis. The toll of Bill Tell's decades of successful ministry finally caught up with him incapacitated and depressed, he found that the road to recovery began at the cross. To his delight, healing opened new freedoms as he embraced the gospel in new ways. What does that mean? Well, let me begin, Chuck, by saying that I think all clinical depression will have, will have a strong medical component to it. And I think it's unfair and it's hurtful to tell a person that it's just a problem of their willpower or it's just a spiritual problem. I think it's like telling a person with a flu to get over it mm. um, or somebody with a serious cancer. Just come on, get over it. There, there is a medical aspect to it. But for me, I think believing some unhealthy lies about my identity, that I didn't have any worth, that I was stupid and so forth, believing those lies led, led me to some very, very unhealthy, toxic ways of living. And, and I think those toxic ways of living helped to trigger, for me, what was an inbred predisposition to depression. Mm. There, is, there is some family history that I have in that direction with, with my sister and parents and grandparents and so forth. And so for me, discovering the good news of who I am in Christ, that I don't have to perform my way out of my shame and that I'm not worthless, I'm not broken, and discovering that I, I am enough in Christ, those, those truths began to restore me to, to some healthy living and began to remove the triggers from my life that would initiate and, and trigger the medical response of depression. And so you know, I wouldn't want people to think that depression is just a spiritual issue or a willpower issue or an emotional issue. There is, there is more to it than that. But often it's triggered. It can be triggered by a spiritual issue, a past hurt, a lie that we believe. Not always, but that was true for me. Bill, you, you have opportunities to share your story in many different kinds of forums and environments. What, yeah. what, is, the, what is the frequent, the most frequent response you get from audiences after you share your story? Maybe why is it important for people 
experiencing depression to actually hear someone like you admit, I struggle with depression. Well, you know, after I shared my story, and, and soon I made a decision we were not going to hide it. We knew that wouldn't be helpful. But as, as I share my story, and of course, depending on the size of the audience, there's always at least one person who comes up after everybody else leaves, and they look both ways to make sure nobody's there to listen or overhear what they're going to say. And then in a whisper, they say, I have never told anyone this, but you just described me. Or they'll say, I have never told anybody this but I'm on antidepressants too. And, you know, I think it's so important for, for that person to, to hear my story because they need to come out of hiding. You know, what? whatever we hide always stays unresolved. And not only does it stay unresolved, it, it's like a malignant tumor within us. And, and time, time just doesn't heal what we hide. And so they need to bring it out into the open where somebody can, can love them and put their arm around them and walk with them. There is no healing in hiddenness. Mm. You mentioned earlier that uh, you started counseling and it was one of the best decisions you made. You landed a particularly good counselor who understood what you were going through. Are there, are there other elements uh, toward that road to recovery that you could suggest to people who might be battling clinical depression right now? In other words, what are some of the keys to surviving clinical depression? I think first is don't try to hide it because you can't. You may think you're hiding it, but all your friends will know that you're struggling. And so don't even try to hide it because you can't. And then I think secondly, don't be ashamed to get medical help. In clinical depression, you know, there's an imbalance of, of your chemicals in your brain and that needs to be addressed. So don't be ashamed to go to the doctor and get, get help. There's no, nothing to be ashamed there. And then I'd add, get a, get a counselor who understands the, the good news and the, the implications of the gospel so that you can begin to eliminate any, any, un, any unhealthy strategies that you have for living that may be contributing to the depression. Uh, it could be mostly medical, but for a lot of us, I think there's unhealthy lifestyles that probably contribute. In the in stress contributes and things like that, and I think for most of my friends, there 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 is a medical component that needs to be addressed. But for many of them, they just have toxic thoughts that contribute to a toxic way of living that that creates such stress, the stress of hiding, and and that just messes with the chemicals in our brain. And so I think don't hide it. Get some medical help, and then find a counselor that can help you deal with your toxic memories and thoughts that influence your behavior and, and way of living. Let's take that one man or that one woman right now for our last question, mm -hmm. who's sitting across the table from you right now, and they're in the pit of despair. They, they just can't put their finger on why, but they know that that darkness you described earlier uh, is part of what they have to live with every day. They're sitting across the desk from you right now. What yeah. would you say to give them hope? You know, Chuck, I don't think there's anything I can say that will give them hope. That person's mind will not accept my encouragement. I think it's absolutely impossible. But there are some things I can offer. I can offer my faithful presence. I can offer my respect. I can offer my protection. I can, be, I can be an advocate to help open doors and opportunities for them and then walk with them through those doors and, and into those opportunities. You know, and ultimately, 
you know, our hope has to be in the gospel. We may never physically get better in this life, but the gospel still gives us hope of a future life in which I'll be whole. And so I'm not sure there's anything I can do to give them hope, but my love for them will work. Love works. What advice do you give to the people who are the caregivers of the one who's battling clinical depression? The, the spouse, the children, the neighbors, the friends. Uh, what advice would you give them when it comes to how best to minister to the person who is battling depression? Don't try to fix the person. You can't do it. And there's so many ways we try to fix each other. You know, we, we do it by encouragement, by giving a verse, giving them a book, something like that. And I found I just couldn't respond to any of that. And I just needed, I needed Sue to just be there, to know I was protected. So I just need people to kind of stand at, at my perimeter for a long period of time until I was ready to let a godly man come close to me and ask some questions. And it was interesting, Chuck, in the, in the two weeks of intensive counseling, this, this counselor probably made, and we met with him every day for like three hours. In those two weeks, I think he made perhaps six statements altogether. But the rest of the time, he asked questions. Gifted, gifted question asker that led me in a path of self-discovery. And I discovered things about myself that I did not know. And in that self-discovery, I found an incredible amount of healing. I know when I tell people my story, I'm telling them my story. I'm not asking for help. And I think we have to differentiate when somebody just needs to tell us their story, what they're struggling with. We need to differentiate that between them telling our story and them asking us for help. Well, I am Dr. Chuck Betters, and you have been listening to uh, my conversation with Bill Tell, who is the author of a tremendous book. I would encourage you to get it called Lay It Down, Living in the Freedom of the Gospel. Now, people worldwide struggle with clinical depression, and I am very confident that Bill's story of his own battle with this darkness will encourage many there who have no hope. Now you can find more stories like Bill's when you visit markinc.org, but there you will also find an interview with Bill's wife, Sue, where my wife Sharon interviews her and she describes her journey as Bill's caregiver. Now if you're struggling, you do not know where to turn for help, please contact us here at Mark Inc. Ministries through our website, markinc, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And our team wants to help you find peace and purpose that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus. We want you to trust Him. We want you to believe the gospel and receive Christ as the provision for your sin and my sin. Trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. I want to thank you for listening to this resource from Mark Inc. Ministries. Bill, I want to thank you so much for being so transparent your willingness to open your heart to help those who are in need of help and hope.